Second Chronicles chapter 24. We didn't quite get out of the last few verses of chapter 24 together last time. We were looking at the reign of Joash, a young man who the Bible tells us came to the throne when he was just seven years old. He had been hidden in the house of the Lord as one of the descendants of David's line, and uh, no one even knew that he was alive for a period of time. A wicked woman named Athaliah was reigning, and for about six years it appeared God's plan and purpose had failed. And then ultimately, uh, this young man, Joash, was brought to light by Jehoiada, uh, the priest who had been hiding him in the house of God and mentoring and preparing him. And when he came to the throne, he began to do a lot of what was good and right in the sight of the Lord. It says, all the days of Jehoiada the priest, that is why he was under the influence of Jehoiada. He did a lot of good and wonderful things for the Lord, but it seemed that when the influence of this godly mentor in his life was removed, uh, that unfortunately he didn't have the spiritual fortitude to be able to stand on his own two feet and to continue to walk with the Lord himself. And sadly, he kind of had a bad ending uh, to the latter part of his days and his reign as a king. He became very uh, cruel and callous. He was proud. He didn't want to listen to the counsel of others. And ultimately, we were told as we came to the end of our verses last time uh, that he didn't uh, remember the, the kindness that the Lord had shown to him through Jehoiada the priest. And if you remember, he actually put to death, uh, it tells us, some of his sons uh, who were trying to speak into his life and he didn't want to hear uh, what was trying to be said to him and he actually murdered uh, a son of Jehoiada the priest right in the very house of God, the very temple itself where he had been preserved and spared by God and, and brought in this incredible experience of being this last remnant of an individual that God could use. And after all God had done in his life, how quickly he forgot God's goodness and God's kindness and ultimately took the life of this kind of, if you would, uh, sort of adoptive father, Jehoiada the priest, who had done such wonderful things for him. And really, probably it was sort of like an adoptive brother. He actually puts him to death because he didn't want to hear the word of the Lord from him. Well, uh, as we'll see at the end of this chapter and in the chapters ahead, as always, and certainly is a recurring principle and theme in the word of God, everything that tends to unfold in our lives, whether individually, whether in our relationships, whether in a family, whether in a church, whether in a nation, uh, always is directly dependent upon where we are at in regards to our relationship with God. Uh, and when we're in right relationship with God, things begin to unfold in the way they should. There's good fruit, uh, there's peace, there's harmony, there's proper things taking place. And when we gravitate away from that, uh, we make ourselves vulnerable to problems, to poor choices, to suffering painful consequences by bad decisions that we make, and we eat the bad fruit of our ways. Again, the Bible tells us that the way of the transgressor is hard. Uh, and, and always remember that. Uh, always remember that when you look at other people and somehow you would manage to misunderstand and think as you see someone rebelling against the Lord or doing things not following God and you're prone to almost think, well, it just doesn't seem fair. Here I'm trying to do what's right and righteous and serve the Lord and, and they're you know, transgressing against God's will and word and ways, and it seems like things going great for them. No, no, it's not. God says the way of the transgressor is hard. 
You may not see it on the surface, but I assure you that way is a hard path. There are a lot of hard things that they're having to deal with, such as the beginning, verse 1 above all else, is they have absolutely no peace in their heart and their mind. And there's a sense of inward misery and constant turmoil that God allows when somebody's transgressing against him. And should we ever be tempted to want to go the way of the transgressor, understand that's not going to make things easier. Oh, well, I'm mad or frustrated or upset, so I'm going to kind of like as a temper tantrum, I'm going to use that as an entitlement to just rebel against God now. Look, that's just going to make things harder. It's not going to make things better. It's just going to make things worse and more difficult. And we see our relationship upon with God is always the thing that directly affects our experiences in life. So here, Joash had rebelled against the Lord, done a very evil thing. And so verse 23, the remaining part of chapter 24 says, So it happened in the spring of that year that the army of Syria continual enemies of Israel came up against him and they came to Judah and Jerusalem notice and they destroyed all the leaders of the people from among the people and they sent all their spoil back to the king of Damascus so notice the enemy comes up against them they make themselves vulnerable God has pulled his hand back of blessing and preservation because of the rebellion of the king they make themselves susceptible to the enemy and notice it brings nothing but destruction it says they were destroyed as well as tremendous loss it says the, they captured the spoil that is the rewards of battle and they took away possessions and wealth and resources and sent them back to the king of Syria and that's always what the enemy is going to seek to do and when we take ourselves out from under the blessing of God's goodness and out from under his hand of preservation we make ourselves susceptible to enemy attack in our life and that's all the enemy wants to do is to destroy and to rob and to steal that which is good in our lives and to take it away from us and here they suffer great loss militarily and nationally now verse 24 says for the army of the Syrians came notice The Holy Spirit wants us to see this. The army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, but the Lord delivered a very great army into their hand because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers, so they executed judgment against them. So notice, the sole reason that they lost in the battle had nothing to do with military uh, strength. It had nothing to do with the odds that it was a stronger military, a bigger military. In fact, the Holy Spirit wants to see it was the exact opposite. It had to do with one thing, where they were at in regards to their relationship with the Lord. And it says here that they suffered great defeat by a small company of men, even though they had a very great army. And the reason was because the Lord allowed them to be defeated. Uh, In a sense, circumstantially, it looked like they had, by means of their military strength and resources, what would have given them an absolute assurance of a victory. But if God doesn't want us to experience victory and God doesn't want us to succeed, he has absolutely no problem allowing us to be defeated. And here, a very small army defeated a very large army because they were not in right relationship with the Lord. Again, this reminds us of this New Testament principle. It can be repeated all throughout these kind of series of chapters that we're in here in this section of Second Chronicles. It shows up in James. It shows up in Peter's writings as well, where it tells us that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. 
That is, we can be in humble, meager conditions and God can be gracious and bless. And many times Israel would have a very small army and the odds would be way against them. But the presence of God and the help of God would give them victory when they were just a tiny little army over gigantic enemies, whether it was a Goliath or whether it was a million man army, God would give them this an incredible victory because God would intervene and be gracious to them in their humble, dependent condition upon God. But in the other way, we see it here where there are a great army and a very small army defeats them because their hearts were lifted up against the Lord and in their pride and rebellion, God actually resists them. And it says the Lord himself was who caused them to be defeated and you know never want to be in that place where we can try and try and try and the Lord says because your heart's not right I'm going to let you just be defeated constantly uh, and you know what a, a reality check that can happen to us personally it can happen to us in some way collectively uh, if our heart is not in the right place before the Lord verse 25 it says and when they had then withdrawn from him for they left him severely wounded now this is referring to Joash because it says of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priests, again that was sort of the you know adoptive father Jehoiada the priests, and killed him on his bed, so he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the king. So ultimately he lost his life. Uh, he was put to death as the result of the murderous uh, treason he carried out against the sons of Jehoiada the priest. And these are the ones who conspired against him, uh, Zabad, the son of Shimeath, the Ammonitus, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith, the Moabitus. Now concerning his sons and the many oracles about him and the repairing of the house of God, indeed they are written in the annals of the books of the kings, and then Amaziah his son reigned in his place. So we now come chapter 25 to the next reign of the king of Judah, the next one being Amaziah. And it says, verse 1, that Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Johanan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But it says, not with a loyal heart. So, again, the idea of he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but the idea is there's sort of an exception there, not with a loyal heart. The idea is not with a fully dedicated heart to the Lord. His heart, when somebody's not loyal, it indicates they're not fully committed. They're not fully dedicated to a person or to a cause. And so in some way, his, his heart was half-hearted. And the Bible tells us in, in the book of Psalms repeatedly that we're to worship the Lord with a whole heart, that God doesn't want a half-hearted commitment. He wants a wholehearted commitment. We're to praise Him and serve Him with a whole heart. Uh, the Bible tells us earlier on in chapters we saw not too long ago that the eyes of the Lord, it says, are roaming to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for someone whose heart is loyal towards Him that He might show Himself strong on their behalf. So God's looking for a loyal heart. A fully committed heart. Jesus said that the most important commandment above all else for us simply is this, is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. That is the, the entirety of our being. That we would utilize our heart, that we would utilize our mind and our thoughts and our mental capacities, our physical strength of our body, every part of our being to just be fully devoted and committed to God, to show our loyalty towards Him and 
and our love. Uh, and the reason that's important is because you know as well as I do, whenever you do something half-hearted, uh, typically it doesn't turn out very well long-term. If you enter into you know, a, a work effort and you're kind of half-hearted in what you're doing, well, eventually that's going to affect your performance, going to affect your commitment level, how well of a job you do to carry out the project or to actually you know, give a quality effort to it because that other half of your heart that's not committed, that's not really into it, that's usually where you tend to default to. Same thing happens in relationships. If you enter into a marriage relationship and you're kind of half-hearted in the marriage relationship and you're not all in, well, over time when challenges and struggles come and you start putting some mileage on the marriage and you hit some potholes and you know make a few wrong turns and have a fender bender, a few, eventually you're going to gravitate towards just the, the fleshly carnal nature, which is going to say, you know what, I just, I know I started, but I just, and you're going to ultimately move away from loyalty in that relationship. And the same is true with the Lord. Uh, so that's why the Lord wants us to be fully committed to him. That's why the New Testament tells us in the book of Romans that we are to, you know, to, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, uh, fully committed to the Lord, that we're to present ourselves to the Lord in light of what he has done for us in a sense of fullness. And we'll see that Amaziah, it seems that he did some things that were good and right in the sight of the Lord, but ultimately because he didn't do it with a loyal heart, his heart begins to, to shift over time and he begins to gravitate into unhealthy things and ultimately doesn't finish out too well. And you know, the reality is you can do what's right even if your heart's not fully committed. Uh, you, know, you can do what's right in a sense of, well, let me do something right even if your heart's not really in it, just in a sense of obligation or because you want to earn some sense of appearance of how you look in front of others. And maybe Amaziah was doing a little bit of that because his heart wasn't fully committed. But in his early reign, he seemed to begin to do well. It says, verse 3, it happened as soon as the kingdom was established for him that he executed his servants who murdered his father, the king. However, he did not execute their children, here's the reason why, but did as it is written in the law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, saying, the fathers shall not be put to death for their children, <clears throat> nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall die for his own sin. So whenever there's a transition of power and there's kind of a, again, an assassination, which kind of happened in the prior chapter with Joash and now Amaziah has come to the throne, there's always kind of that unsettling thing that happens whenever there's any transition of power, a new administration comes in, you're kind of trying to sort through things and get things to stabilize and calm down a little bit. And so this was very typical and common in ancient culture, particularly with dynasties, that uh, if someone was executed uh, in the family or excuse me, say assassinated, uh, that you would track down those who were the assassins of the prior king and you would not only put them to death, which was, it was a capital offense, murder was, that was right and just to do that, but typically it was cultural to not just put to death and execute the assassins themselves who murdered the prior king, but to actually put to death their entire family to put to death the entire family so that then there didn't become this sort of rival feud back and forth. Okay, now you murdered one of ours and, and now you know we murdered one of yours and then there's kind of this back and forth thing where now the children or the grandchildren, they're going to try and make the next assassination attempt. The way you would deal with that is you typically would just execute the entire family line. 
and it would just remove the family feud and the potential threats further to the throne and the dynasty. But notice it says that when he justly carried out execution of the murderers, verse 3 says, of his father, the king, those who did murder him. However, verse 4, he didn't follow the cultural pattern because it says, and this is the exception is why it's noted, he did not execute their children. That's typically what they would do. And the reason is says he did as it was written in the word of God where the Lord had commanded, Deuteronomy 24, 16, that fathers weren't to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers, but a person was to be accountable and die for their own sin alone. And again, we see this principle all throughout the, the, the Old Testament as well as New Testament, well, that each person is individually accountable before God. Uh, certainly our sins can affect our children. Certainly the sins of a children can impact and influence and affect the parent. But ultimately, as far as an accountability judicially before one's maker, before God, we're all individually accountable before God. And God is not going to parent, punish a parent for the sinful, rebellious decisions of their child, and nor is God going to punish you know, a child for the sinful, rebellious decisions of their parent. But it says very clearly in the word of God, each person would die for his own sin. The, the soul that sins shall surely die, the Bible says. It's appointed for each man to die once, Hebrews 9 says, and then to face judgment. That we all become accountable before God and must give account, and it's our own sin that brings judgment upon our own lives. And that God is fair and just. He gives each person equal responsibility. And he's not going to punish us in a punitive way for the sins of someone else. So uh, this was a statute that God had put into place. And notice it tells us here that Amaziah chose to honor the word of God over what was culturally practiced in society. Or you might say as well, probably what would have been more the inclination of his own natural feelings, emotions, and thoughts in his own mind. From a cultural perspective, hey, from culture standpoint, uh, that's the pattern of the world. You execute the whole family. Don't just execute the murderers. You execute the whole family. That's what everybody in the world does. That's the standard of the world. And yet he chose not to honor the standards of the world and follow the patterns of the world, but instead to observe the principles of the authoritative word of God instead. And that's a very important and wise thing for us to learn how to do. Because same thing for us as followers of the Lord. There are patterns of this world, of this fallen world system, of what's right and what's wrong, what's considered morally acceptable and, and what's not morally acceptable. And the patterns of this world, if you haven't noticed, are very distorted. Very distorted. And they're just going to get more polluted, more perverted, and more distorted. And, and we should never, as God's people, be measuring our decisions or how we handle things according to the way that the world does things. The world's standards or the world's patterns. It's a grievous mistake when we find ourselves justifying doing things because we kind of have the mindset, well, that's what's accepted in the world. Every, I mean, that's what everybody else does. So, I mean, what makes me so bad? I mean, I'm just, I'm just doing what everybody else does because we live according to a higher standard. 
This is what we live according to, what is written in the authoritative word of God. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Not how does the world do things. That's not our pattern. We live according to a higher standard. We answer to God and to God's word. And the same way, even, let me again just emphasize, from an emotional standpoint, feelings and thoughts. I don't know about you, but if somebody murdered my father or a close relative of mine, I'd probably be struggling with emotions a little bit in my anger and my my response. And now here's Amaziah. He's got the power of the throne. I mean, he's the highest ranking individual in the nation. For him to exercise his power and to choose to say, you know what, uh, I, I, I want to take a little extra vengeance out and to put to death all the children on top of the pattern of the world. I'm sure his thoughts and emotions wanted him to really retaliate because he's got some real strong emotions. Somebody murdered his own father. But yet he chose to put his emotions and his thoughts in subjection to the authority of the word of God. And that is always a good and a right thing to do. Because you and I both well know there are times when our thoughts and our feelings are making us want to justify behaving in a certain way or doing a certain thing or retaliating or responding or reacting in certain ways that are not in alignment with what the Word of God says. It would make us feel good. It, it would fe- And it's, it would seem logically justifiable to us. Well, in light of what they did to me, I, mm, no, it doesn't matter what, at the end of the day, what is the standard of God's Word? And if the way I feel is contrary to that, I'm to submit myself to the word of God and suppress and ignore and deny my feelings. There may be legitimate feelings, but I'm to deny those feelings and obey the word of God instead. I'm to set aside my thoughts and my rationalizations, and I'm to be obedient to what's written in the scripture of what I refrain from doing, what I do or don't do according to God's word. So verse 5 says, And moreover, Amaziah then gathered Judah together, and he set over them captains of thousands and captains of hundreds according to their father's houses throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from 20 years old and above. That was the number when young men were then responsible uh, to be able to start serving in military conflict. They were also held accountable to God regarding their worship and other things. And again, I, I always love to take note of this in the Old Testament that at 20 years old, at 20 years old, God said, grow up. You're 20. Now today, we, we, you could still be 40 and you don't have to grow up. You can still live in mom's basement and play video games. And God said, by 20, be a man. Behave like a man. You're 20 years old. That was the number God picked. God saw something about that age. At 20 years old, they could serve in the military. They were accountable. They were responsible for their own actions and decisions as far as being at the feasts for worship and so forth. So again, from 20 years old and above, they were numbering the people of Judah now. And there were 300,000 choice men, a pretty substantial standing army that were able to go to war who could handle spear and shield. But Amaziah, verse 6, also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel. That is from the kingdom in the north. This is the time of the divided kingdom for 100 talents of silver. So he hires them out as mercenaries. Now, why? We don't know exactly. Maybe he wanted to feel more secure in his military strength. Perhaps this is an indication uh, that he just wasn't content 
with his 300,000 men. He, he wanted to have something a little bit bigger than that. And maybe he's lacking trust in the Lord in what God can do. And so he hires out for a hundred talents of silver, another hundred thousand mighty men of valor who were soldiers and fighters uh, from the northern area of Israel. Verse seven, but a man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you. For the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the children of Ephraim. So we're not told who, the Bible just calls him a man of God, but he comes with a prophetic word of warning to Amaziah, who's just done this. And he says, look, Amaziah, this is not the Lord's will. It may appear good to you. It may feel good to you. It, it may be something that you want to do out of your lack of trust or discontentment at the moment. You want a bigger army than you have. But he says, look, uh, the, the people of Israel, God's not with them right now. They've abandoned the Lord. They're not in right relationship with the Lord. And God is not going to bless if you get involved in this, if the hand of God is not. So he says, look, God's not with the people of Israel or the people of Ephraim anymore. So do not let that army go with you out to battle and so he gets this strong caution again just from a man of god i like this you know we don't have to be somebody like an isaiah or a paul the apostle or an ezekiel or a jeremiah to at times receive a word from the lord that he wants us to give to someone else this is just a from god's perspective just a man of god just a man who knew god and God puts something on his heart to go and help the king. And he comes and he says, King, this is not good that you've hired out these men to go with you from Israel. The Lord does not want you to do that. But verse 8, it's almost as if he discerned that he was going to disregard the warning from God. So he says, but if you go, be gone. Be strong in battle. It's almost as if he's being sarcastic. Go ahead and he's saying, you be as strong as you can in that battle. Put your greatest strength and effort. But he says, even so, notice, God shall make you fall before the enemy. For God has power to help and power to overthrow. Isn't that a great reminder? God has power to make us be helped and to make us succeed. And God also has power, if need be, to overrule and to allow us to fall and to be defeated. And sometimes that's a good reminder. God can, God can make us succeed by giving us help, and God can also make us fail. <laughs> Lord, you make me fail? If it helps you, I will. <laughs> and so sometimes God won't allow something to come to fruition. God won't allow something to, to succeed actually for our own benefit and if it's not a part of his plan. So he says, God shall make you fall before the enemy. He has power to help and he has power to overthrow what you're doing. Then Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel. Boy, is he not like a typical, I hate to say American, but the way he evaluates, he says, wait a minute, but, but that doesn't make economical sense. What about all the money I just spent? I mean, I just put a good investment into that business endeavor. I mean, I mean, I know it may not be God's will, but what about the money I spent? How am I going to recoup my investment? And he's trying to base his decisions not upon obedience to God, not upon what's God's will, but upon what's most economically advantageous for him what's the best financial benefit that will come and he says look i'm gonna lose a lot of money i put some money into that i sunk some money into that and god says well yeah it was a bad business decision but you want to be in right relationship with me 
Or do you want to get the most for your money? What matters more, your money or me? And sometimes God even asks us that. Yeah, maybe you did invest some money into that. Maybe you invested some time into that. Maybe you put some effort into that. Maybe it's, again, whether it's a financial investment or a business endeavor or something, some road we started going down. Maybe it's a relationship. I put a lot of time. What about all this time I put into this relationship? Look, what's more important, trying to hold on to something that's important to us or be in right relationship with God? Sometimes we have to be willing to let go and even lose at times, if that's what it takes to be in right relationship, better to lose out and to give up that which may have been valuable, we may have invested, and to just let it go and to cut our losses. It'd be much better to do that and just be in right relationship with God. Because God can take care of all of that. At the end of the day, it's not about dollars and cents. It's about doing what's right before the Lord. And notice the answer. What about the hundred talents I've given to the troops? Look at the answer. The man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. His answer, look, do you think God can't give you back your hundred talents of silver? (laughs) If you do what's right in the sight of the Lord, he can give you back your hundred talents. He can restore back what you've lost. In fact, he can do much better than this. Here, you're trying to do this, and he's saying, look, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. He's able to do way better than what you're even thinking. And so here, just a good reminder sometimes to be willing, if need be, to let go of something, to to make sure that we're staying in right relationship with the Lord no matter how far we've gone down any path. And he says, look, don't, don't stress over it. Trust the Lord He is able to give you much more than this. There's no lack in God's ability to supply or or to restore anything back to us, money or any other thing, what it may be. Verse 10, so Amaziah discharged the troops that had come to him from Ephraim to go back home. Therefore, their anger was greatly aroused against Judah and they returned home in great anger. So, the reason the troops are angry is they're now dismissed as Amaziah kind of has to humble himself and he says, look guys, you know, honestly, I apologize. I never should have contracted you as mercenaries. Uh, the Lord said I should have done this. I can't take you to battle and he dismisses them. And it says they were greatly aroused in their anger as they returned home. And the reason is because you would receive a certain amount of compensation when you were hired as a soldier, a mercenary, but the greater reward and compensation was the spoils of battle. And so now they're angry, they've committed to this, and they're thinking, are you kidding me? Now we're not to go out to battle and we're not going to be able to get the spoils of war. And and so they're they're upset. They're they're kind of angry at him. You know, sometimes this is something you have to be willing to uh, be willing to face. It's kind of the consequence of maybe bad decisions that we make sometimes. So they're kind of upset with him. And Amaziah then strengthened himself, leading his people, and he went to the Valley of Salt, and he killed 10,000 of the people of Seir, that is the people of Edom. And also the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive, that is prisoners, and brought them, kind of a sad passage, brought them to the top of the rock and cast them down from the top of the rock so that they were all dashed in pieces. So we talk about major cruelty. He puts to death 10,000. He takes another 10,000 prisoners. And then they kind of one by one in some way push them off the precipice of some cliff. I mean, this is amazing. The incredible cruelty 
that can come into a human heart of what we can do to other human beings. And so here he puts to death all these prisoners of war uh, for some reason, just extensive cruelty. But as the soldiers of the army, which Amaziah had discharged, said they would not go with him to the battle, they raided the cities of Judah. So on their way home, they were pretty angry. And now in their retaliation, why uh, they're out to battle, they go and raid their cities from Samaria to Betharon and killed 300,000 in them and took much spoil. So the, the idea is, they, hey, you robbed us of the opportunity to get our plunder. We're going to rob all your cities and your families on the way home. And you kind of have now the, the consequences of anger because he's offended these individuals, certainly not justified or right what they did, but he's kind of just reaping now the fruit of his bad decisions. And, you know, we can kind of write the course of something when we make bad decisions, but it doesn't mean we're going to completely uh, escape all the consequences of people's offense or anger and things they might do uh, if we've offended people by poor choices that we made in some way in connection to them. So they kind of robbed their own cities on the way home. Now it was so, after Amaziah came from the slaughter of Edom, that he brought, now this is quite shows you where he's dragging himself down a hill now. He bought, brought the gods of the people of Seir and set them up to be his gods and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Now, I got a big question mark right there by 14 in my Bible. Here he defeats the people of Edom and for some strange reason, after he has success defeating the people of Edom, he decides that somehow it would be beneficial to rob all of their gods and their idols and to bring them back home and to begin to worship in this idolatrous way, bowing down before them and burning incense to them. I mean, even the pagan people in that day when they would fight battles, they had those who worshipped idols and all types of foreign deities. They had this mindset that if we defeated you, it simply meant our gods are more powerful than your gods. So this was kind of just a cultural mindset. So now here, Amaziah, who had the help of Yahweh God in his early and latter days, uh, is having these victories. He defeats the people of Edom, and now he just decides to just enter into full-blown idolatry. And he brings back, I mean, he just goes to show you how quickly our minds can just slip gears and how fast we can just gravitate off course if we don't keep ourselves in right relationship with the Lord on a regular basis. So he's now bowing down to these gods of seer. Therefore, verse 15, understandably, the anger of the Lord, that is his jealousy, was aroused against Amaziah and he sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand? So again, is God not merciful? He's rebelling against God. He's showing dishonor towards God by worshiping idols. And God doesn't just immediately destroy him. God doesn't immediately punish him. Talk about the patience and the mercy of God. Again, God sends a prophet to him. God sends someone to him to bring the word of the Lord, to question him, a rebuke, the challenge. What are you doing, he says? These gods couldn't even rescue those people from your hand. But so it was, verse 16, as he talked with him, though the rebuke came, that the king, he just got angry and stubborn, saying, have we made you the king's counselor? Yes, who do you think you are? Cease or be quiet or shut up, the idea is. 
Why should you be killed? In other words, you better stop what you're saying and how dare you rebuke and challenge me as the king or you're going to lose your head, he says. And then the prophet ceased and said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and not heeded my advice. So interesting. The prophet of God doesn't keep pushing. He doesn't keep repeating the same things. He says, look, I gave you the word of God. I spoke the truth to you, but you have a free will. And he says, if you're telling me to be silent and that you don't want to hear what I have to say anymore, then I won't tell you. Then I'll go silent. And I'll tell you, there's a few times in the scripture where God goes silent and no longer speaks. And you know what? There's nothing really more scary than God going silent. Then when God says, fine, if you don't want to listen, then I won't say anything else. I just won't speak anything more to you. I'll just go quiet. And here's so the prophet says, okay, then I'll cease. But he says, I can tell by your rebellious, stubborn heart that God's determined to bring judgment upon you. You're bringing your own self-destruction simply because he would not heed the advice of the prophet. What it really boiled down to, what did the prophet bring? The word of God. Because he would not heed the word of God, he was bringing his own self-destruction upon himself. Verse 17, now Amaziah, king of Judah, asked advice, however, and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel saying, come, let us face one another in battle. So he now turns to the king of Israel in the north. He's feeling kind of kind of strong. You know, he had a victory. He's you know, got some momentum going. So he turns to the king of Israel in the north and he says, hey, how about you and I get in the ring? Had a pretty good you know, fight last time. And so now he challenges the next contender. How about you and I come and face one another in battle? And Joash, king of Israel, sent down to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar, the idea is the twig, sent to the big monstrous hundred-foot cedar tree that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as a wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle, just destroyed it, completely overpowered it because it was just a tiny twig. And then he said, verse 19, his interpretation of the little parable, Indeed, you say that you've defeated the Ammonites, and your heart is lifted up to boast. Stay at home. What now? Why should you meddle with trouble that you should fall, you and Judah with you? So the king of Israel in the north says, Look, you had a little victory. You had a little success. You got some momentum going, great, rejoice in that, celebrate, be glad you've had a little bit of victory, you've got some forward momentum, but he said, don't let it go to your head. What are you doing? Why are you now coming and starting a conflict and meddling, he says, in something that you should not, that's going to bring trouble and that's going to cause you to fall and everybody connected to you to suffer in the process. So he says, why should you meddle with trouble that you should fall. You know, again, the idea is meddling is, is getting involved in something that we should not get involved in. And oh, the danger of meddling. Oh, the danger at times of overconfidence or thinking somehow that we can meddle with certain things and there won't be consequences. You know, me- meddling is never a good thing, especially when it has to do with meddling with sin. 
and thinking, oh, I can play around with this or I can meddle with this. I mean, I, I can handle it. I'll, I can kind of just, you know, dabble in this a little bit. But I, I got control. I can keep it under control. And all of a sudden, we start to meddle with, you know, maybe drinking alcohol a little bit loosely and recreationally. Next thing you know, we start meddling with it. And all of a sudden, we got a lot of trouble on our hands. And now we got a major issue. And all we were doing was kind of just, we were just meddling a little bit or just start meddling in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And we're just, you know, we're just meddling at first a little bit, but then all of a sudden we are in way over our head and that little bit of overconfidence has got us in a really bad place that ultimately leads to us falling flat on our face. Major destruction. So important that we be very, very careful. And here, again, just this reminder how Honestly, success and prosperity can be a very dangerous thing. You know, we start to have a little bit of victory. We start to do well, maybe have some success in the things of the Lord. We start conquering sin a little bit and we start feeling strong and thinking, wow, man, victory over this and victory over that. And then all of a sudden we, we start to believe our own press reports and think we're a little bit stronger than what we really are. The Bible says that when we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. And we need to be very careful. And here, this is an unfortunate thing. Amaziah makes this great mistake. He comes and the king's trying to say, look, stay at home. Just go home. Be glad you're doing well. Be content where you're at. Don't push the envelope and try and meddle with trouble that you should fall. You and all Judah with you. But Amaziah, notice, would not heed. He didn't want to listen. The Bible says, ultimately, for this came from God, that he might give them into the hand of their enemies because they sought the gods of Edom. So interesting, God used his rebellious decision as a way to ultimately bring about his just judgment for the wrong things that they had been doing anyway as a nation. So Joash, king of Israel, went out. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. And every man fled to his tent. Then Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, Abeshemesh, and he brought him to Jerusalem, and he broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. So he comes in as he's attacking now and he begins to tear down the walls that were built up as a fortress around the city of Jerusalem, which were its defense, to keep that which was not good out and to keep that which was good and wholesome on the inside. So now the, the walls are torn down. There's great vulnerability. And he took all the gold and the silver and the articles that were found in the house of God with Obed-Edom the treasures of the king's house and the hostages and he returned back to Samaria and Amaziah the son of Joash king of Judah lived 15 years after the death of Joash the son of Joash king of Israel and the rest of the acts of Amaziah from first to last indeed they are not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel and after the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord. They made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. He fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. And they brought him on horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. You know, for sake of time, I'm not going to try and get into part of chapter 26 because it 
covers Uzziah's reign, and I think it's good to look at it together. But if I can, just to, as we wrap up this evening, notice again verse 27, as it tells us, after the time that Amaziah had turned away from following the Lord. He was following the Lord. He was at one point following the Lord, but what did it say at the beginning of the chapter? It says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. Because his heart was not fully committed, because there wasn't that full surrender, that complete dedication, there were these reservations and and kind of this half-hearted attitude of apathy in his heart, ultimately as things unfolded and he came to power and he experienced a little taste of success and prosperity, because his heart was not in right, full devotion to the Lord, ultimately says in verse 27, he ended up turning away from following the Lord. And how sad when a person is at one time following the Lord, but then they choose to turn away from following the Lord. And we all have that capacity within us to turn away from following the Lord. And understand, that's exactly what the enemy wants us to do so that we honestly just sabotage ourselves. So that we bring about our own self-inflicted trials and our own self-destruction. That's exactly what Amaziah did as he lost his life here. And these prior verses that we just read through as he was defeated by meddling with the nation of Israel in the north, as he was turning away from following the Lord, he started meddling in things that he should not be meddling in. And as a result of that, the consequences came and it describes how he was defeated. It says in verse 22, it says verse 23, that walls were broken down. It tells us in verse 24 that he lost valuable things in his life, gold and silver, precious possessions, things that were treasured and valuable were lost, stolen away, robbed from him. As well as verse 24 says that certain individuals became hostages, they became prisoners. You know, those are the exact things that the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to gradually, and he's patient, folks, very patient. He's more than glad if we just have a half heart and we can have a half heart and serve God with a half heart for a good season of times. That's fine because eventually I'll get you because of that other half. But ultimately that's what the enemy wants us to do is to slowly wear us down to get us meddling in things we shouldn't meddle in to the point where then we find ourselves suffering personal defeat and walls start to get broken down in our life that were protecting us, good boundaries, and we start suffering the loss of good and valuable things in our life and ultimately we find ourselves like hostages, prisoners taken captive. Paul writes to Timothy and speaks about trying to win back those who've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. That's what the enemy wants to do. But that's not what has to happen in our lives. What can happen in our lives is that we can choose every day to give up and to dedicate our heart afresh to the Lord and say, Lord, I I don't want that experience. I want to experience all the good things that you want for my life. And so, Lord, today, help me today, Lord, to love you with my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength and to give you a whole heart. And you know what? And and, and to just be all in. To be all in. Look, nobody likes a half-hearted worker. Nobody likes a half-hearted commitment. God doesn't either. Just be all in. If you're going to serve the Lord, why hold back? Why hold back? 
You might as well be all in, fully devoted, and experience everything God has for you. And on top of that, avoid all the things that could happen to you if you walk around with a half-hearted commitment and ultimately gravitate towards turning away from following the Lord. May God give us the grace to do it. Let's stand together.